Okay, so this week's Torah portion is called Noah. So um, just to understand the timeline of how the Torah portions are working. So in general, the book of Bereshit, the book of Genesis, takes us through the first 26 generations of the world. We have in the first Torah portion, Adam, and we go from Adam and Eve to Noah. From Adam and Eve to Noah is 10 generations, son after son. In the book of Noah, we go through 10 generations. We go from Noah to Abraham. So following son after son, that's 10 generations. By the way, parenthetically speaking, um, Noah and Abraham did meet each other. They lived here physically on this world together. And um, Avraham was born in the year 1948. Obviously, I'm not talking about the secular calendar. I'm talking about the Jewish calendar, which starts from the year of creation. We're now in the year 5782. And Abraham lived in the year 1948, just to give you time frames. We left Egypt and we received the Torah in the year 2448, and we entered Israel in the year 2488. Just giving you a little bit of time frames, a timeline to understand the Torah. So in the first Torah portion, we go through 10 generations from Adam to Noah. In the second Torah portion, we go through 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. Now, the rest of the book of Genesis takes us through the life of Abraham, the life of Yitzchak, Isaac, the life of Jacob, and Jacob's sons. The last Torah portion tells us about the final blessings that Jacob gives his sons, and then tells us a couple of verses of how the Jews lived in Egypt post Jacob's passing, until Joseph passes away. Then the next book, the book of Exodus, begins with the birth of Moses. So here you have a time frame that the first, uh, the first, um, the first book of the five books of Moses takes us through 26 generations. One of the ways to remember that is that in our prayers, which is a chap, it comes from a chapter of uh, King David in the book of Psalms, there is what we call the Hallel Hagadol. The Hallel Hagadol is not the Hallel that you and I know in our prayers, but rather it's a chapter that every single verse ends with the words, Ki Olam Chasto, forever is his kindness. There are 26 verses, 26 times it says, that ki le'olam chasto, forever is his kindness, his meaning God. And we extrapolate from here that the first 26 generations, the world and the human race existed only on God's kindness. We were not yet given the Torah in which God gave us the opportunity to earn our keep, so to speak. Okay. Now let's get back to the Torah portion. Let's get through some of the stuff. And then I want to talk to you about a second flood. So 
Um, actually, before I talk to you about this second flood, I just want you to know that Rashi quotes to us that before the flood of Noah, which the entire world was immersed and all of living creatures other than the sea creatures and the, and the animals and the human beings that were in the ark, everyone was killed. However, we're taught that generations before that, there was a man by the name of Enosh. And in his days, there was a tsunami which took out a third of the human race. So they already knew that when they get corrupt and when there is the, when there is infidelity, when there is um, robbing, murdering, um, they get punished. And nevertheless, they did not learn their lesson. So what happens here? Noah, the verse tells us, it begins with, these are the offsprings of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Now, why does it tell us these are the offsprings of Noah? Noah was a righteous man. It should have said these are the offsprings of Noah and go straight to the next verse, which lists his three sons. So we learn out from here two things. Number one, there is a custom whenever you mention a righteous person's name, you say if the person's passed away, you say a righteous memory, a blessed memory. Why? Because when you remember and you mention um, a, a righteous person's name, you remember it with a blessing. So too, on the antithetical side, when someone mentions a person who was evil, um, you mention it together with, may his name be erased. So therefore, we learn it out of this verse, that the minute the Torah mentions Noah, it mentions him as a blessed memory. Now, there is an interesting argument because the wording here is, seems to be a little bit too elaborate. It says, Noah was a righteous man in his generation. We never find that. We find are these a righteous man or not a righteous man? What does it mean in his generation? Our sages extrapolate from here, interesting, two different opposite thoughts. One says it's coming to tell you how great he was, that even though he grew up in a corrupt environment, he still was unaffected by them and remained righteous. Another one says, no, it comes to minimize how great it was, saying that, yeah, compared to his generation, he was great. However, if he would have lived in the times of Abraham, in, in, in the presence of such a righteous man, he wouldn't have been considered someone special or someone righteous. Interesting that our sages argue about this. And obviously, they're all focusing on what the verse is coming to do, to magnify or just to minimize how great Noah was. Now, Noah had three sons. These three sons had wives. Now, if you do the mathematics, you have Noah. Noah's wife, her name was Naama. Then he has his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafes. And they are each married. So there was eight human beings in the ark. By the way, this is where Abraham, when we learn it in a couple of weeks, when he was defending the people from Sodom, and he asked God if there is 
10 righteous people. And if there is nine righteous people, would you complete the minion, God? Would you be number 10? And then he stopped. Why? Because he said, I know that Noah had a total of eight righteous people, and that wasn't enough to save the human race. Therefore, I know that less than nine people, righteous people, we can't find nine righteous human beings amongst Sodom, then they won't be saved. So he took it from this story. So I'm sharing with you the mathematics. Now, interesting, God tells Noah, create, build, build an ark. And he gives him specific dimensions. Now, in these specific dimensions, he's told how long to make it, how wide to make it. And he's told to make it three stories high. And, and the three stories high, the, the bottom story storage was to be where the disposal would be. The middle one would be where the animals were. And the top one was where the human beings were. Now, do the mathematics and then take a walk through the Bronx Zoo. And you will see that it's almost, not almost, it's impossible that those measurements would have housed every single creature, mammal, every single type of plant, every single insect, every single bird, all in those measurements. It just wouldn't be. So therefore, the Zohar says that inside the ark, there was the aura which took place, which will take place when Mashiach comes. And we know that in the holy temple, in the holy of holies, there was a phenomenon of space that left the actual normal dimensions of space. So you know that spirituality can't be confined into a specific space because space is physical and spiritual isn't caught in space. Therefore, for example, Elijah, when his soul comes to every Brit Milah, or when his soul comes to everyone's Seder, Passover Seder, to participate in the cup of Elijah, how can it physically be possible that he would be in every single one of those places? And the answer is that Elijah does not come as a human body, rather the presence of his soul. And because his soul is spiritual, it is not confined where, well, he's at my Seder, so he can't be at your Seder. That only takes place in the physical realm. So when you get to a level of spirituality, so even though every, every animal that was in the ark was a physical being with a size and a mass and a space, however, the ark, the ark itself, even though it was a defined measurement, nevertheless, it had within it the spirituality which took space and dimensions beyond space and dimensions. And so too, we already see that the animals that would never cohabit, they would never coexist, not cohabit, they coexist together in such a small area, were already coexisting peacefully in the ark. Hence, again, we have the messianic, messianic aura of which Isaiah says that the wolf and the lamb and the lion 
there was a different dimension that took place in the ark. Now, the ark, Adam, Adam, Noah took 120 years to build the ark. From when God told him to build the ark, he started in the slowest process possible. He actually started planting a forest which would grow into trees, which he would chop down to use the wood. Now, our sages want to know why. So to understand why, we need to understand another dimension. When God had to take the Jewish people out of Egypt and he was going to drown the Egyptians, he didn't tell the Jews to build a raft. He had another plan. He split the waters. There are many different ways for God to have saved whatever he wanted to save from that generation. So our sages asked, so why did God put such a difficult imposition upon Noah to build and to bring and to smear with the tar and figure everything out? And the answer is that God did that solely so that the people would be able to continuously question Noah, what are you doing? So that Noah would be able to answer them that remember what happened a couple of generations ago when the people got corrupt? Well, the people have gotten corrupt again. And God has told me that he's planning to bring a flood. So what's going on here is this entire 120 years of slowly building, making sure that everyone knew what he was doing and why he was doing was all part of God's compassion in order to keep on telling them, people, I don't want your demise. As we say in the high holiday prayers, for God wants not the demise of the evil people, but rather he wants to remove the evil from them. And being that God has given us freedom of choice, it will have to be us that turn to God and ask God to please help us overcome our evil instincts. So that is what's taking place in this entire building of the ark. I want to share with you another interesting thing. Just so you should see how everything has so much deeper meaning. So when he talks about, when God talks about the roof of the ark, it says it should be in a point, it should go slanted, and it should come to a point which is one ama. Now, that one ama on top, there's different opinions on what an ama is, anywhere between, um, we usually say around a foot and a half, that those that say smaller, those that say bigger, but that's the measurement about something like that. So let's say 18 inches, give or take. But there's a deeper meaning here. What God is telling Noah is that the world's security is when the roof over our head, it all leads up to the Amma. Now, here's an amazing teaching. The word Amma is made up of three letters, Aleph, Mem, He, which stands for three words, Elokeinu, Melech, Ha'olam, our God, King of the universe. 
If that's where the roof upon our head leads us to, the consciousness of Elokeinu Melech Olam, the Amma, then we are safe. Another interesting teaching. The Baal Shem Tov points out that the word used for ark in this portion is teva. Teva can mean a box. But interesting enough, the word teva in Hebrew also means a word. And when God tells Noah, there is a flood, there's raging waters, there's confusion, there's a rat race, there's anxiety, there's drives for power, there's drives for money, for fame. And we feel like we're in a washing machine, in a spin cycle. The way to stay grounded is enter into the teva. And what that means is to simply balance yourself out by every single morning, enter into the words of prayer. Enter into the words of Torah study. Now, I want to share with you something. The only thing that can go wrong in the Teva in the time of the flood is if it's not airtight. If there is a hole where the water can enter, we have a problem. So too metaphorically concerning the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. If we do not shut our cell phones, put it on airplane mode while we're davening, while we're saying words of prayer, or while we're studying words of Torah, then we haven't really entered into the teva. We're making sure that there's holes where the chaos of the outside is dominating our inside. Thus, we do not have that concept of being able to ground ourselves. I want to share with you something even deeper that the Rebbe explains about this teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. When the ark is airtight, the verse says that the waters lifted the ark. It took the ark so high that it was higher, and we have an exact measurement, higher than the highest mountain. That means that when we are able to ground ourselves, when we are able to start our day before we get into the madness of it all, when we can start our day with airtight words of prayer, and again, I don't want to make it sound mystical, I want to make it practical. Shut the cell phone, sit alone in a corner, obviously in shul with a minion, but sit alone, don't get into the gossip, just sit down, you've come to pray, do the prayer. Then what happens is not only does the chaos not drown us and, 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 and sap us from our spirituality and our focus, but it lifts us up. Okay, now, after all of this, God tells Noah, it says exactly when the rain started. We'll talk about that in a moment. So there was the seven days. And then after that, there was the 40 days of water. And then it was for over a year 
that the water was no more building, but it just until it seeped back down. Now, the waters that opened up, the verse tells us it came from heaven and it came from beneath. The wells were coming up. And interesting enough, God tells Noah, take seven from the pure animals, the kosher animals, and two, a male and a female, from the non-kosher species. So Rab Shlomo Yitzchaki, the famous Rashi, immediately points out to us, aha, so here we know that Noah studied Torah, which leads us to an interesting concept. So before the Torah was given, the people that have focused on finding God, finding spirituality, finding a conscious connection with God, were given the spiritual revelation of knowing what the Torah would be telling us, the 613 commandments. And that is why Avraham learned in the yeshiva of Noah, Isaac went to the yeshiva of his son, Shame, and then Jacob went to the yeshiva of his great-grandson, Aver. So there was the yeshiva called Yeshivas Shem Ve'ever. And they did study Torah. They did study spirituality. They did have an opening to learning what were the commandments that God would one day give mankind. However, those commandments were not, they were not imposed upon them. It was not given to them, but rather... They knew of it, and to the best of their capacity, they aligned themselves with it. So much so that, that our sages tell us that Abraham, Avraham Avinu, kept Shabbat. Now, I want to tell you how serious the sages discuss this. There is an argument in the Talmud if Avram was just spiritually a Jew or he was legally a Jew. One opinion says that Avram was the first legal Jew because it says clearly that God told Avram that I choose you and your offspring because you have trained them and taught them to follow in the path. However, there's another opinion that says no. They were spiritually Jews, but legally Jews, the Jewish people as a legal identity started only at Mount Sinai. Hence, we're taught that the entire Jewish nation will call them the children of Israel, meaning Israel, the second name of Jacob. There was a mass conversion, and the Talmud tells us how Moses did all of the three, four steps, depending on male or female, of conversion at Mount Sinai before the Ten Commandments were given to us. Now, why am I bringing this out to you? Because even though Abraham would have been able to keep the entire Torah from his own volition, once he knew that that would be what God would give his offspring, Shabbat becomes a problem. Because when a person is in the process of converting, the law is that he keeps the Shabbat but until the actual moment where he converts or she converts, they must quietly, no one has to know. They go into the bathroom, they open and close the light. Why? Because Shabbat 
is called a gift that God specifically gave to the Jewish people. Hence, prior to the actual conversion where this person becomes a Jew, he or she is not allowed to fully observe Shabbat. Now, so the sages discuss, what did Avram do? I just told you that Avram kept Shabbat. However, according to the opinion that he wasn't the first Jew legally, he wasn't allowed to keep Shabbat. So my grandfather, blessed memory, showed me, he shared with me, that the sages have a very interesting answer. Avram on Shabbat wore the tzitzit. Now, how does this solve the problem? It solves a problem because the tzitzit is not a garment that anyone would wear. No one has purposely a four-cornered garment with strings hanging from each corner. Hence, if he was a Jew, then it's a garment. Because for a Jew, the Torah tells us we should wear this garment. However, if he was not a Jew, legally he wasn't a Jew, then it wasn't a garment. If it wasn't a garment, his wearing it on Shabbat would be considered carrying. So here I'm sharing you how technical it is that our sages are clear that those who live the spiritual life, a selfless life, a life that wasn't about me, 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 but rather a life of service to God and to God's universe, they did have divine inspiration to know the mitzvot and they did keep the mitzvot. Hence Noah, without being told in the parasha about the split hooves and the chewing the cud, the fins and the scales, he knew which one of those were kosher species and he needs to take seven of them and which one were non-kosher species and only take a male and a female. Okay, now the Torah portion goes on and tells us all about how the waters and how the ark floated on top of the waters until finally Noah felt that the ark landed on the mountain. Now, I want to share with you something. The Talmud tells us an interesting story that there was the king who actually ended up being the one to destroy the holy temple. Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a teaching in the Talmud that says that he found the ark. So this is not metaphorical. There was a real physical ark made out of wood. Now, this ark landed on the mountain Har Ararat. Now, when Adam, when it landed on the mountain, they still were not able to go out. Just because the ark touched ground, that doesn't mean that the ground has yet fermented from being submerged in waters, actually boiling hot waters for so long. So therefore you have the story of even once the ark landed, Noah opens up and sends out a bird to see. Now, I want to share with you a teaching that I've only seen of the Rebbe. The Talmud says that there were three species that cohabitated in the ark. Now, the law is when the world is in suffering, we are not allowed to have sexual cohabitation. Hence, each one of them was punished. 
One of them was one of the offsprings of Noah. Another one was the dog. And another one was the raven. And the Talmud says the punishment of each one. Now, the Rebbe says that when Noah sent the raven out of the ark, it was not in order to see if the land was dry. For that, Noah used the Yonah, the dove. He sent the raven out because of what the raven did. He separated the male from the female raven. And that's why you will not find anywhere in the verses that it says that Noah brought the raven back in. The dove, every time it returned, right? When it returned, he brought it back in. It doesn't say that by the raven. So the raven remained outside of the ark. Obviously, you know, it, it probably was standing on top of the roof. Where is it going to go? If there's no dryness, if the dove couldn't land anywhere, then the raven couldn't land. But it was the dove that was used to see if there was dryness or not. Now, huge conversations. Where did the dove find the olive branch from? If everything was destroyed and Noah had to, to bring in plants so that he can restart everything, the whole botanic world was all had to be rebuilt by Noah, then where did it find the olive branch from? So it's interesting. Number one, I want to share with you a very interesting teaching. We learn now that olive branch is bitter. And the dove teaches us, I rather have my sustenance be bitter, but come from the hand of God, than to eat the sweetest delicacies coming from the hand of a fellow person, a handout. Very interesting. But let's move along now. So... There are different opinions, and some of them are very interesting. Some of them talk about how the land of Israel was not submerged in water. Hence, things were not destroyed. But that is a huge problem to say that, really a huge problem. First of all, it says no way that there was such a miracle. Second of all, our sages clearly tell us that God putting the, uh, the world, bringing a flood, and specifically 40 days is because a mikvah has to have 40 sa'a. That's a liquid measurement, 40 sa'a of water. So it's used over here, the liquid measurement. So therefore, you should know that the flood was literally Hashem taking the entire world and purifying it in a mikvah. Then that wouldn't work at Israel not, because if one organ, one limb of the body is out of the water, then the entire body is not considered that it went through the purification process. The Rebbe actually, the Rebbe of blessed and righteous memory, has a simple understanding how it started, how it all started as the water was coming down, simply speaking. The Rebbe talks about the science of the olive tree and how it wouldn't have been destroyed and how it would have restarted growing because it, it was growing on the mountaintops. And therefore, as the water was going down all over, the mountaintops had the longest time out to the sun. And the Rebbe has a very simple approach to it. But interesting, I just want you to know that everything is questioned. Where was there an olive branch from? Noah comes out, he brings sacrifices to God, and then something amazing happens. At the end of Genesis, God said, at the end of last week's Torah portion, the portion of Genesis, not the book of Genesis, 
At the end of the Parsha of Bereshit, it says, God said that he's, he was saddened by in his heart for whatever that means. God has no heart in that sense, no form or figure, but we use, we use human terminology so that we can relate to it. However, it says that God, so to spoke, speak, regretted that he created the, man, the world of the human race because these are the words it says that humans from their very birth their heart has evil inclinations. And therefore, I'm going to eradicate that. However, over here in this portion, God uses the same logic and says, so why would I punish them? It's not their fault. They're, they're innately egocentric, self-centered, and hence driven by this not good inclination. So how does that work? And the answer is that because Noah did teshuvah, that's what a sacrifice is all about. He builds an altar and he brings a sacrifice. Sacrifice is all about teshuvah. Therefore, all of a sudden, the fact that mankind is evil, is, or has evil, I shouldn't say mankind's evil. It's, not, it's a very bad thing to say. Because we have intrinsic self-centered and selfish and egocentric drives, so once upon a time, that was only seen for its negativity. However, along comes a human being and shows us the power of repentance. And all of a sudden, those very character defaults, those very character faults become the impetus of something so beautiful in which we turn back to God, asking God to help us return and do teshuvah. Hence, that very logic, that very natural psychological fact of the human psyche now becomes a reason to be able to see even our faults as beauty because they are the impetus of teshuvah, repentance and return. And hence, God makes a covenant with Noah saying that I will never do this again. And he places a rainbow into the clouds. Now, a lot to be discussed about the rainbow. I want to just talk about the simple, pragmatic side of the rainbow, the way it's explained in Kabbalah. Simply speaking, the rainbow is created by the light hitting the water, the cloud, in a sense where it creates a prism. It, it acts as a prism and separates the light. In Kabbalah, what that means is that there is the direct light and there is the rebound light. The direct light has the rainbow within it, but you don't see it. It's only when it hits in the right angle splits that we see the beauty of a rainbow. Hence, again, the notion of teshuva. The perfect light that comes down is beautiful. However, the power of teshuva, which is the sets and the rebound, is where we truly get to see all the hidden beauty within light. That's the deeper dimension of the rainbow. Hence, again, we're going to have the same concept. Man's faults are ugly and a reason for destruction until mankind introduces the humility of asking forgiveness and doing teshuvah. So even when we have clouds, so to speak, metaphorically, blocking the light, however, when we use those clouds to really create the rebound 
to be able to reach up to Hashem and say, I have made a mistake. Please help me come back to you. Then the very fault becomes the very foundation of our ultimate beauty. Hence, specifically, we have the sign of the rainbow. Now, I wanted to share with you while I'm on the topic of the rainbow, so that you should know that, you know, in, in, in other cultures, the rainbow is a beautiful sign. We look at it, we take pictures of it. We talk about the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Actually, in the Torah, the perspective is do not look at the rainbow specifically. Because what the rainbow is saying is that once again, we are in a position of corruption. And it's only because of the covenant that God made that he will not destroy the world that there's a rainbow here. Now, there is an unbelievable teaching of the Rebbe that I just recently learned. And the Rebbe questions, the sages talk about natural events as if they're godly signs. For example, the the Talmud talks about a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse. Now we're talking about the rainbow. I mean, anyone that studies science knows that there has to be a solar eclipse. There has to be a lunar eclipse just because of the way the orbits run. There's going to have to be rainbows just because of the nature of light, the nature of clouds, the nature of the water within the clouds. So, so why are we reading here that, oh, it's a phenomenon, it's, it's a supernatural phenomenon? Seemingly, it's not. Hence, I just want to share with you, I can't go through all the teachings on the Torah portion, but just an interesting insight where the Rebbe talks about the alignment of nature with certain gateways that open up through those times of nature. For example, the Talmud in the tractic of Shabbat talks about mazal. Mazal simply means luck. However, mazalot also means constellations. And the Talmud talks about how being born at certain days, at certain times, in the way certain constellations are aligned, means that there were certain gateways that were open that have affected our nature, our characteristics. Now, we know that to be true simply because, I mean, just physically, we know that different cultures of different nations are very different, and it has a lot to do with the simple temperature. I mean, I'm not going to get into, you know, making scientific statements here, but what we do know is that there is a certain mentality we consider the British mentality. There's a certain mentality we consider the Latin mentality. And a lot of it has to do simply because of this is a sunny neighbor, this is a sunny area region where it causes more passion, more emotions. This is a more rainy and cloudy. It's very interesting. It's, it's, it's not a joke that Seattle has the highest suicide rate in, in America. And it's attributed to the simple cloudiness and gloominess that, that, so we have certain today, especially with the different teachings that we now know of this famous science of the brain, that neurons that fire together, bond together, and, they, and, and therefore certain behaviors that are taking place just because of reactions to our environment 
become our personality. And there's great work you can do. You can do. I've, I've done a lot of reading on this from the science aspect. You can do readings of Joe Dispenza and everything. Really the wiring of the brain. Now, taking this to a different level, what we're learning from the Talmud is that there are certain moments that when nature aligns in a certain way, there is a certain type of energy that becomes available and that can influence us in how we behave. And we know that. We know that. I mean, again, I don't want to belabor this point, but we know that in Afghanistan, there is the cold season and there is the hot season, which makes the hugest difference at the times of terrorism and, and that goes on. We are affected by that which is around us, not just not just in the physical level, it's wet, it's this, also on the psychological level of how we react. So I just wanted to bring this to the table because seemingly there's a huge question going on in this phenomenon of saying that the rainbow is a sign when seemingly it's just really part of the laws of nature. So I hope I was able to give some insight to share about that from what the Rebbe teaches. Okay, then after that, we have a story that Noah gets drunk. By the way, there is an opinion that says that the tree of knowledge was actually a grapevine. I know that the cultures have it as the apple. There's all different that has a source in Torah too. Some say it was a wheat, some say it was a fig. Either way, there's an opinion that says it was a grape. And actually, if Adam could have just held out, both Adam and Eve could have held out just a couple of more hours they were supposed to use the fruit of the tree of knowledge to create the wine for which they would make Kiddush on Shabbat. There's a teaching in the sages. So Adam has a downfall with wine. Noah has a downfall with wine. That is why the holy books bring this concept, the custom, that when Jews drink wine, we say lechayim, and others say lechayim ulebracha to life and to blessing. Because we are very conscious that in the history of the human race, wine has led to sometimes things which are not so pleasant. So just wanted to share that with you. Noah gets drunk and then there is a story that one of his sons does something wrong to him. Now there's two opinions. One opinion is he castrates him. And the reason why he castrates him, our sages say is because really, Adam had two sons, Cain and Abel, and there was fighting. Our father has three sons, and he's trying to have a fourth son. We shouldn't allow this. That's one opinion. Another opinion is that he sodomized him. And according to that opinion, I've never seen a logical reason why would he sodomize his father. But be it as it may, what the verse does say is that he saw the nakedness of his father when he tells his brothers. And his brothers, what they do is, they treat the father with deep respect and they walk backwards not to see his nakedness. They wrap him in a blanket. So here I want to just share with you just a simple concept. I mean, obviously we're talking about a parent and a child and parents are unfortunately given by children. And sometimes we feed into that, which is really playing with fire. We create a kind of God reality as if we have all the answers and we know everything. And then what happens is 
when any human being becomes a super, a higher power to another human being, there's going to be failure because no human being can ever be upheld to that level of being a higher power and perfect. However, what I do want to share is what do we do when we see the shortcomings and the faults of another human being? So what we know, unfortunately, from politics is the best thing to do is to exploit it. Document it, keep it in your pocket for the right time and the right moment. That is a very horrific way to deal with it. The law says that a parent can make a mistake and the child can acknowledge that the parent made a mistake. However, there are specific laws in how carefully the child has to bring be in bringing to his parents' attention that they made a mistake. So this, this notion of I'm the parent and I'm right, that's, that's just foolish. It's just not right. However, the notion of that a child can just, you know, say you're wrong and you're wrong. No, there's a way how to do it. Noah got drunk and he was wrong for getting drunk. His children saw him get drunk. Now, how are we going to deal with the fault of a parent? I think it's really important what we're being taught here. Okay, let's go further. We then have the story of Tower of Babylon, where they build a tower and they want to go to war with God. And God says that um, this unity amongst them and the fact that they're speaking one nation, one language, has them not getting together in a sense of bringing each other to greater heights, but rather in bringing each other down. I'd like to over here to give my simple insight to what this means. You know, when people talk to me about dating, they talk to me about, you know, what am I looking for, this and that. So yeah, obviously, you know, Besides the spirituality of it all, soulmates, it's also, you know, we know today from, from generations and generations of, of successful and failed marriages that there are certain hot spots. We talk about finance, we talk about religion, we talk about children. If people aren't aligned in those three areas, the, the, the percentage of, of success is very low. However, I always mention something else, and I think that's what God is telling us here. You want to be with someone who brings the best out of you. Someone who does not bring the best out of you, but quite the contrary, brings the worst out of you, is someone who you're best not communicating with. Now, I will share with you just my own personal life. When I have a situation where the worst was brought out of me, I end up not harboring over anger of the other person I end up harboring over the anger towards myself. Why did I let this be brought out of me? I think the fact that God says, okay, what's going on here? They're speaking one language. And instead of encouraging each other, instead of helping each other, they're enticing each other the wrong way. They're bringing the worst out of each other. Best to break this communication. My own little insight to what took place over here. Okay, lastly, we have the beautiful ending in which finally we're brought to Avraham. Our sages say 
that in the first Torah portion, like I mentioned at the opening, we go through 10 generations. The next uh, portion, we go through 10 generations. And then on the next three or three, four generations, we spend the rest of the entire book of Genesis. And hence, our sages say, when people look for precious stones, they have like a sift. They pick it up and they sift. They let all the sand fall out. And then they grab this stuff that they want, the precious stuff, the diamonds. So too, God went through 20 generations, siphoned out an Adam, siphoned out the Shalach, siphoned out a, you know, a Noah, but then gets to Avram. He says, okay, now let's take our time and talk. Okay. What I want to share with you is that according to the Zohar, upon the verse, I sent out an email today, the weekly email, and you can look there for more details. I just want to share with you that the Zohar says that when the verse tells us that Noah was 600 years old and at this this year was the, the, the windows of the heaven opened up and the, and the wells of the earth um, opened up and water came out, the Zohar says that will happen again. That will happen again on the Universal Friday. What is the Universal Friday? Basically, the verse says that by God, a thousand years is like a day. Hence, we're in the sixth millennium, and the sixth millennium is considered Friday. And just like on Shabbat, in the second half of the day, we're actually supposed to already be um, getting into the taste of Shabbat, so much so that you're even supposed to taste from the food. I remember my grandfather, bless his memory, every Friday when I was with him, he would sit down and take like, you know, some of the stuff, the vegetables from the soup of the Friday night dinner to already, you know, wet the taste of Shabbat. So too, before Mashiach comes, once again, the Zohar says the windows of the heaven and the wells of the earth are going to open up and waters will come out. Only over here, it says that the waters are not physical waters like H2O but rather it is knowledge. We refer to the waters of knowledge. And the Zohar says like this, in order to prepare us for Mashiach, we're going to have the opening of new knowledge from heaven, meaning spiritual knowledge, and the opening of the knowledge of earth, which is scientific knowledge. And if you do the calculations of exactly when that happened, that sixth millennium in the 600 years, you will see that, number one, that was the time of when the Baal Shem Tov came along and revealed to us a whole deeper and new dimension of Torah knowledge through the teachings of Hasidut and understanding the deeper depths, the soul of what Judaism is talking about. And so too in science, if you follow the progress of the human race, you'll see it didn't just like, okay, it just keeps on excelling at the same rate. There was a certain point at that time where things just opened up. Now, the question is, okay, I understand how the teachings of the Torah and the deeper mystical teachings is preparing us for Mashiach. But how is the new knowledge of science preparing us for Mashiach? How does that work? And here the Rebbe gives a very beautiful insight in one of his teachings. And he says as follows, what is the job of science from a Torah perspective? 
So the Rebbe doesn't talk about this there, but I want to share with you something personal that I know. So the person that worked in the Rebbe's house told me that he personally testified to me that the Rebbe's books are not set up the way most people set them up. Most people who have religious books and secular books, they put it by sets. They'll even have one bookcase where they have the religious books, one bookcase where they have the secular books. He testified to me literally that the Rebbe had the books all together. In other words, the Rebbe could have had one volume of the Chumash, one volume of the Talmud, and one volume of Encyclopedia Britannica letter W. That's what he literally told me. I shared this with my cousin, who's a rabbi in Toronto, and he says, interesting that you're telling me that because I have a relationship with a professor here who, when he went to a private audience with the Rebbe, the Rebbe specifically asked him, do not separate your secular books from your religious books because they're both serving the same purpose, and that is to know God. So the Rebbe talks about in this talk two interesting concepts, which I'm going to briefly share with you. Number one, the Rebbe talks about the concept of communication. Now, when the, when the Rebbe delivered this talk, it was way before the internet, way before the digital. And, and, and we were talking then about radio. We, the Rebbe was talking about then the radio, the telephone. And the Rebbe points out something very interesting. The Rebbe points out that what this brought to mankind was a very pragmatic, very pragmatic sense of that there is an eye that sees, there is an ear that hears, and all your actions are being documented. I mean, today, beyond the telephone, beyond the security cameras, today, I mean, we know from Google, I mean, you will notice that you do one search and the next thing you know, your Facebook and your Google and your Instagram are shooting you ads on that specific thing. The fact that there is an eye and an ear and, and that exists, it, it just became so normal and tangible for every human being that knows this simply because of what technology brought to us. So it's very clear to us, yes, there is an eye that watches, there is an ear that hears, there is a, there is a, a documentation. I mean, I, I'm not going to get into, <laughs> I just saw, saw a documentary. One of my daughters asked me to watch a documentary with her about Snowden. I mean, it is very practical that that ancient teachings of the sages and the ethics of our fathers, we now have a very physical, tangible understanding that it is true. Then comes along the radio, then comes along Wi-Fi, then comes along satellites, and we now know something else that's amazing. Right now, there are waves of things that are available to us if we just had the connection. So the fact that I have this computer on right now, this laptop through which I'm talking to you, is not what creates that the Wi-Fi connection availability is here. It's just that I'm connecting with it, hence you are actually seeing me, hence you are actually hearing me. But the potential of Wi-Fi exists whether I do or I don't turn on my Zoom. That is very interesting in understanding that everything that is available to us, we are actually living within it. We know, we know all of what's going on with the 5G and everything. I'm not going to get into the pros and the cons. I'm just saying that we are very practically, tangibly conscious 
of the fact that our physiology, our biology is being affected by what we are presently living in. Now let's take it to the good. Everything, God consciousness, God communication is here. We have scientific understanding today that just because we don't see it or we don't hear it, it's because we don't have the smartphone in our hand or whatever it may be. But it is here and we are breathing in this consistent God consciousness and energy that we are living in its midst. And then I want to share with you one last point. Another huge area in the quantum physics that we today know I mean, I'm not even getting into dark matter and what that teaches us and everything. I want to just talk about the two points that the Rebbe talks about. The holistic existence within each organism and within the entire organism system where everything affects everything. Not just because the butterfly wings theory but simply how we are all living off each other in the sense where truly there is one energy force to all of existence. And we are all holistically part and impacting and being impacted by each particle of that system is literally the scientific opening to the most mystical teaching of the verse Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one. In Hasidus, God is one is not to teach me monotheism rather than believing in, in that many gods. No. The ultimate Jewish understanding of God is one is that God is everything and everything is God. And hence, everything exists in a holistic unity and oneness. Science has brought us there today. So literally when the Zohar says that not only will there be an opening of spiritual teachings that will prepare us for Mashiach, but science will prepare us for Mashiach. We are literally living that today. People, thank you. I'm going to shut the mic and open up for comments.